Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 172, Middlemarch, part four. Today, we continue our journey through George Eliot's masterpiece, Middlemarch, as we dive into book four, Three Love Problems. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We are Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hey! Welcome back. So good to see you guys. Yep. Before uh, before we got on the air... uh, Ryder informed us that his son is turning into a stand-up comic, so. <laughs> he started emceeing. Well, yeah, it, our, our, night, our, night, our nightly shows have evolved. At first, it was wrestling. He and I would wrestle every night, and um, it, it, it became more and more elaborate. We got, you know, we had all our moves down, and we had different, um, like, ways to indicate who was supposed to do what. And I kept wanting him to get into costumes and, like, make it full-on WWF style, but he didn't want to go, go there. And so then it became a dance party that turned into a dance show. I don't do the dancing. That's that's my my wife and and him do the dancing, and uh, my brother-in-law who was who was potted up with us, the three of them. And and then that's morphed into a talent show where everybody gets to do a talent. And my son is also the MC, uh, which turned out to be his real special skill. We didn't quite see coming. He just is constantly cracking jokes and giving commentary on the talents that are that we are displaying. Uh, it's pretty spectacular. So do you, do you think it was his introduction to our episode on the Babysitter's Club that opened up in him the idea like, you know what, I can do this professionally? No, you know, honestly, because uh, what's happened, it's it's uh, because, you know, I, I, I started doing one second a day video. Do you guys know mm-hmm. this? Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've, been, I've been doing that since the beginning of this year. So um, he, I'm, I'm filming him much more around, walking around. And he, you know, he used to be like, no, no, I'm not into it. And he'd hide the can. I was like, come on, man, because he loves my one second a day video. So I'm like, come on, this is for the one second a day video. So now he's gotten to take into whenever I turn on the camera, he looks at it and becomes like Mr. Host. He's like, hi, we're outside. Now let's go look at these hummingbird eggs. And I realized, I was like, what is he doing? But then I realized it's because he watches a lot of shows that do that. Um, right. He watches the show called Wild Kratz, which is, you know, two guys, two brothers that talk about animals and every show they're talking to the camera they're like you know youtube influencers talking to the and so he's picked up oh, their no. patterns and he loves yeah and i'm just like oh god well, so he thinks he thinks that people are watching him in some you know universe you, but we're never going to publish you should start uh, showing him old episodes of uh huel hauser going around and interviewing people with that remember he had that long microphone so you clean pools What's I have that no idea like? what you're talking about. Me neither. What are You've you never talking heard of about? Hauser? <laughs> no. Hauser. Like he was always like on public TV in California. So Julia, you might not be familiar with him. Apparently, yeah, writers this neither. Sounds like an uh, insidery he sh- reference. He had this show where he would go around and he'd go to small weird corners of California and interview people, and so it'd always be like, so so you you're a crop duster in Colinga. What's that like? And then the guy would be like, well, I, I fly my plane and I dust the crops and I go home and I have a Schlitz. A Schlitz! I love a Schlitz! Oh, I'm sure if you well, if you look on YouTube, and he had a giant microphone. <laughs> it was like 30 feet long and had a cord. So, wow. You know what we did? Speaking of public television and old <laughs> episodes, we did okay, a Bob boomer. Ross We did a Bob Ross painting night, which was super oh, fun. Oh, that's fun. I had never wow. done... 
we got all the art supplies because um, you know I'm I'm in a household of six people, um, and so we all we all set up our easels, and uh, it was really fun. It was I mean the paintings turned out pretty bad, uh, but <laughs> I never painted before. I never painted with oil paints, uh, and uh, my some of my trees looked pretty good. They were they were happy trees. Um, my bridge was horrible, but I had never watched a Bob <laughs> Ross video before, and it was super soothing and funny. He was you know. I'm trying I got to a think. watercolor set that I've really been enjoying. This is, it's been fun. So you guys are descending into 18th century full time, basically. Honestly, so uh, my Vega's curriculum, she's two, so it's not really a curriculum. But the main categories of everything we do every day are painting, music, with a heavy emphasis on piano and singing, and strolling along slowly in the outdoors. So... <laughs> Aww. Yes, she is. I am raising Most her. Mosying 101. I am raising her for a life uh, in a large manner. Um, you know, if she longing suddenly, for more. If she suddenly gets an interest in matchmaking, you've got yourself <laughs> Jane Austen coming up big. You should maybe think about changing your name from Vega to Emma. <laughs> See you know. Happens. She is, it's funny because like her musical skills are actually becoming pretty significant. I'm curious to see what happens um, because she's, she knows uh, her solfege. She, she has great pitch. She's pretty much wow. pretending to play the ukulele. Um, it's getting crazy, but it's not because we're pushing <laughs> her. It's because we're too lazy to teach her other things. <laughs> it's, now's uh, the time it's to pretty really, good time to get her into the mime arts <laughs> yeah little little box the rope <laughs> all sure. that business God. i'm trying to think if there's anything 18th century we're doing here at our house other than um the gnashing of teeth and wailing um <laughs> well there's something 18th century you're doing right now that we're about to talk about uh, talking about literature with with yeah. dear friends and courtesans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is true. So, um, I, I again have to admit something. Mm. Into it. Mm -hmm. Into it. Flew by, really? right? Read beyond this book. <gasps> oh my god! You, you're ahead of us! I'm ahead. You couldn't hold back. Oh. I had a sense of something that was to come, and I had to find out if my sense was correct. That's and funny. I, I felt like this this book yes. kind of plateaued for me um, a, a little bit. I think it's all the political stuff. I'm really yeah. I don't give a shit not about into that. that stuff. The, yeah. the newspaper politics stuff just yeah. kind of uh, wore me down uh, because I just don't care. I really like the the romance stuff and the yeah. Um, the, well, yeah. it's like four parts romance, one part politics. So you can put up with it. Yeah, yeah. But all all the crap about the the land politics and all that I don't care about. But when there's the introduction of a surprise twist of who's getting the money in the will, well, I always like. Oh, that was a great the arrival great of a stranger who takes all the money. That yes. sounds a good thing. Up. Todd, why don't you, new Middlemarch enthusiast, uh, summarize this set of chapters for us? Uh, well, I have to make sure I don't go beyond uh, what okay, I read. We'll so stop if I say you. something, we'll stop yeah. So yeah. the the main part is um, they read uh, Featherstone's will, and 
At the at the reading of the will, a stranger arrives named Ruggs. Is it Ruggs? Riggs. 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 He bit Riggs' tongue off. That's from Silence of the Lambs. Uh, (laughs) So, at the reading of the will, everyone's getting a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Everyone thinks they're going to get more than they're getting. And then all of a sudden, the majority of the estate is left to the stranger, Riggs. It's just Riggs. No S. Riggs. Josh, isn't his name is Josh? Isn't Joshua Rigg, yeah. J- Joshua Rigg gets and he looks everything. Like frog. It's the most important yeah. thing yep. about him. He's described with his bulging eyes. <laughs> and Joshua Rigg is not surprised that he's getting everything. He treats this as like, yeah, I knew this was going to happen. Um, immediately, everyone else is up in arms, like that was my money. Oh my god! So that's one subplot. Well, it's also it really throws off Fred because he was sort of expecting to be able to pay off all of his debts. And and even worse, he was given 10,000 pounds and then they took it away. Because there's two wills. Two wills. So if Mary had burned the will, she would have been able to... Yeah, it's so crazy. And then the other thing that we learn, the the other big plot point we learn, is that Kazabon has a fatty heart. (laughs) 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 And, And Kazabon's fatty heart is going to consign him to death probably within about 15 years because science was pretty good that they could predict when your fatty heart would give out. <laughs> and that's why I had to keep reading, by the way. Um, because um, I I didn't feel like they'd introduce Casabon's fatty heart if that wasn't going to pay off a little sooner. Um, <laughs> but the interesting thing for me in these pages is Casabon's point of view. Yeah, And Casabon is a far more interesting character than I gave him credit for. And I enjoyed reading about him, and I enjoyed his uh, intimate knowledge of his own failures and what he thought his life was going to be like with this beautiful young wife, poor Dorothea. Um, so all that was really good. And um, Well, there's also there's plot complications with the the love triangle between Casabon and- or the... And um, what's uh, his name? Will. Oh, God. Yeah. Ladislaw. So he. Ladislaw. Ladislaw. I always want to say Lid. I get him and Lidgate the names mixed up. Anyway, Ladislaw. Yeah, uh, shows up and uh, and keeps inserting himself into Dorothea's life uh, against yeah, Casabon's wishes. And Casabon writes him a letter, basically saying, "Stay the fuck back," uh, yeah. and it doesn't work. Mm. Yeah, Casabon's like, "Step off, homie." Yeah. So I married her. Go back to Casabon's, um, his really close point of view, because there's a wonderful part right at the end of this book that is, it's both great writing and really depressing, but also feels very of this uh, pandemic moment. Um, Okay, Mm -hmm. let's see. Here was a man who now for the first time found himself looking into the eyes of death, who was passing through one of those rare moments of experience when we feel the truth of a commonplace, which is as different from what we call knowing it as the vision of waters upon the earth is different from the delirious vision of the water which can be had to cool the burning tongue. When the commonplace, we all must die, transforms itself suddenly into the acute conscientiousness, I must die, and soon... Then death grapples us, and his fingers are cruel. Afterwards, he may come to fold us in his arms as our own mother did, and our last moment of dim earthly discerning may be like the first. 
I know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's probably one of the darkest things I've ever read, honestly. But it did feel it was really ringing in me, um, connecting into this historical moment where people are really imagining their own deaths and really imagining the deaths of their loved ones in a way that feels more real than ever. Um, so there, there's a line. Um, it's actually in the next part, but it's like two pages later. Um, I'm just going to say it now because it was the moment where I was like, ah, fuck. I really am into Kazabon. He says, uh, he's thinking, he's, he basically is ruminating on, on the very thing that um, Julia just read. He says, he, distru- he distrusted her affection. And what loneliness is more lonely than distrust? Ugh. Oh, God. Yeah. So you guys haven't read that part. Well, Julia, you have because you've read the book. But when I got to that part, that's why I was like, ah, shit, I'm going to keep reading a little further. Um, <laughs> because, you know, Casabon has been portrayed um, b- primarily through other people's eyes and, of course, through our own um, experiences watching him and his relationship to Dorothea. And he's he's played like a villain, basically. And then, of you know, no one's, no one's truly a bad guy in this book. They're, they're all complicated people. Um, but then, you know, to find out his own... Primor- primordial frailty in addition to his fatty heart is, um, <laughs> is you know, it, it's it's certainly very humanizing. It's also heartbreaking because it's what was foretold 500 pages earlier when you're like, oh, shit, this is not, this ain't going to work. This is not a good marriage. Like writer's great quote from our last episode. You ever been in a marriage and just been like, I ain't going to work. <laughs> I was, um yeah. I, I, it's, 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 this book really drove home, th- this section really drove home for me. Like, it doesn't seem like anybody's very happy. No. Like, like with their, no. their station in life. It's like, you know, because we're, we're covering a lot of different classes, like rich people yeah. and struggling people, like the guards, I guess, are the, the poorest people. And like, nobody's happy. <laughs> like, everybody's kind of screwed and like, uh, saddled with this burden of like dealing with how to, just make it through life economically um, and like stay alive. And, you know, I don't know. It's, it was really a depressing chapter. It didn't seem like there was a light at the end of anybody's tunnel. <laughs> no. no. Well, I mean, Will's, Will seem, Will's unhappy only in the sense that he's not with the woman that he clearly loves. Right. But I also am like, well, there's also something pretty shysty about Will because he knows that Dorothea is with his cousin. Yep. Um, and, Will's going to have his own, I presume, in the next 800 fucking pages of this book, Will's going to have his own comeuppance at some point where yep. we realize, like, oh, he's also a terrible human being. And the only decent person probably is going to be uh, Celia. Um, so, yeah. Who, and Celia's a weird character. We haven't spent enough time with her to really care about her that much. But I hate that she, what's her weird nickname for Dorothea? Like, Boo Boo or Dodo or whatever the fuck? Dodo. Like, you call me fucking Dodo, it's on. You are really <laughs> identifying closely with Dorothea now. This is interesting. Um, we're I'm, also I, being... I'm identifying a little too closely with Casabon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. How's your fatty heart? Age, to be expected. We're the same age, 20 and 27 or whatever the fuck it is. <laughs> Um, and we're also being set up, we haven't mentioned because it's really early on, um, but Rosamund and Lydgate are making a lot of assumptions about money and each other that are 
very unspoken. And (laughs) this is like a super deep, deep, deep dive into their consciousness is where we now know way, way, way more than either of these, you know, main characters of this novel. So that's, I really enjoy, enjoy that. It's suspense on a level that is really depressing. um, And again, not good. Just really not good. All the, but all the all the machinations of land deals and all that shit that yeah that makes me want to step on my own appendages like that, that okay. shit's boring yeah so it's just I, boring I guess I, what's interesting to me is like I, I and this is very this is you know I know we keep making or I at least keep making the comparison to to Jane Austen but like I can't imagine a happy ending for almost anybody right now. Whereas, you know, in like a Jane Austen novel, you you always know what the goal is, you know, get married, get a house, be happy and make a family, live happily ever after. And like George Eliot seems to be completely resisting the even the potential of that. Yeah, uh, I have no idea how this is going to end. I have yeah. no idea. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it feels because, true to life in that way. Yeah, because life doesn't end. So this is also, as we're talking, I haven't thought about this in this way before, but... It is a multi-generational story. So the fact that Kasaban might die or is likely to die in this book doesn't have like the satisfactory narrative weight that it would in a book where he was a smaller character because, of course, we all die. Um, So that's depressing. That's not like, oh, I can't wait for him to die to get on with this. (laughs) Um, He's just, you know... It's just looming. It's looming out there for us like it's looming out there for him. Um, and, of course, we know since Dorothy is so pure of heart and can't make good decisions, um, there's no guarantee that anything or ardent or what, however you want to put it, um, you know, there's no guarantee that any event would make her happy. No external force is going to make her. Dorothy change. is not pure of heart. Dorothy is young. Like she just sure. she makes shitty decisions. That's and, a good call. And she can't really understand the long tail of them. And so she continually makes shitty decisions. Um so that that's why like I, I have no idea how that's going to end. I mean, I sense that at some point Lydgate and Dorothea will find themselves together because clearly they're the two people that are meant to be together, despite whatever um romances they're in right now, but who knows? I mean, I could look on Wikipedia, but I'm not going to do it. Don't. 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 Um, there are some... Do you guys want to jump into... There are some g- super weird and interesting writing choices in this book, I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that I marked to talk about was... Um, there's a lot about Mary Garth in this book. And then she yeah. says, If you want to know particularly how Mary loved End to one, you'll see a face like hers in the crowded street tomorrow. Um, not in this mm. economy, George, but uh, <laughs> 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 um, but I, this was such an interesting writing choice. It was like, I'm not going to describe yeah. her, but I'm going to describe the kinds of people you're going to see, and I'm going to tell you which one of them is Mary. Um, right. I love that. Yeah. So let all these uh, daughters of Zion pass. Um, and fix your eyes on some small, plump, brownish person of firm but quiet carriage who looks about her but does not suppose that anybody is looking at her. Um, and she goes on. So she's basically inviting the the reader to 
literally go find a real person and set that person in your mind um, as this Oh my God, character this is novel. so much like the book we read in our last episode, The Houdini I know. Book, where yeah. real life jumps into the pages <laughs> and it's a shocking twist. Oh my God. <laughs> Are you saying, Julia, with, with picking up this passage, that Spies Harry Houdini, which we read in the last episode, is in fact a better piece of literature than Middlemarch? No, I'm suggesting that Harry Houdini is Mary Garth. <laughs> it's a great way of saying she had common looks, you know? Totally. Yeah. Um, uh, it actually reminded me of, the, I, I read the screenplay for um, uh, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, and the way that uh, William Goldman, I think it was Goldman, right, wrote it, the way he describes uh, one of the guys, I forget which one, uh, uh, I'm sorry. God, Sundance. Uh, the I'm, I'm totally messing up my movies. Uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Right. Uh, it's that movie, and it was that screenplay. And he describes uh, Butch. I think it is. He's like, he, he says, it's a, it's a, it's a handsome face, but it, you would be hard pressed to describe it if you saw it afterward. You know, he basically describes like if you saw this man robbing a bank, how would right. you be able to just you know describe his looks? And it was such a clever way to introduce the character as a bank, you know, as a bank robber, and, but also give you a sense of him. And, and this passage about her totally made me think of that too. So, my cool. my favorite use of something similar is in the book, the ice harvest by Scott Phillips, which became uh, uh, the movie, the ice harvest also it's in the opening page. Uh, he describes a woman who's a bartender as looking like she got drunk and cut her own hair. <laughs> That's <awesome. laughs> well, You're like, Oh, got well, it. <laughs> tells me everything. A common yeah, look. Drunk, to be honest, a common look of, of someone who has scissors and, and bourbon. Um, so this in this section too, I mean, so she started George Eliot started to jump out of the narrative in um the previous book, right? That's that's when that first person thing yeah. came in. Yeah. Um and she's doing it more and more. And it it reminded me, I mean, not so much first person, but essentially, you know, like the passage Julie just read, re- reminding you that there's an author involved, that there's someone who's yeah. telling the story. And it really I in my mind is reinforcing the thought that I had earlier. Uh, you know, two books ago, which is that George Eliot has improved as a writer as she's written this serialized novel and is now more confident in her abilities to jump out and do these things and commentate on the things that she's doing. And she's doing it in a really witty fashion. Um, which I wonder I, how much feedback she was getting while writing the book. Do you know what mm, I mean? Because yeah. if this was being published serially, I, you know, she's gaining confidence as an author but you also feel like the authorial voice is more confident. You know, right. it's more like, now let us drift into this person's mind. Right. Let's go over here and listen to me. Cause I have, you know, it's really, and I wonder if that's because she was getting letters from readers. Uh, I don't know. You know, I don't know the history there, but it, it feels like she knows her audience is like along the ride with her while mm-hmm. she's writing um, mm-hmm. in a way that uh, I didn't quite expect. And that, that's definitely building. It's cool. It's really and cool. And she's she's building their empathy and like she's teaching them how to see. So there was another yeah. one um, again with the Garths. And I feel like this comes a lot in the Garth sections, which is interesting. And I want to think about more. Um, but she says it's the start of a chapter and she sort of floats in and she's like, we have to decide whenever you see like a party with a big table, you got to decide where to sit to listen to what you want. 
And it was just like so delightful, um, but also really smart because she's instructing the reader to do that. Um, like, who do you want to hear from now? Do you want to hear from Mr. Garth about his stupid land job? Or do you want right. to hear from Mary or this little <laughs> kid who's annoying? Um, and yeah, again, so confident and a light, a light touch, I thought. And then at the at the start of chapter 41, there's a little funny bit. Um, and this is about the Garths and Joshua Joshua Rigg. Uh, so it begins, the transactions referred to by Caleb Garth as having gone forward between Mr. Bolstrode and Mr. Joshua Rigg Featherstone concerning the land attached to Stone Court had occasioned the interchange of a letter or two between these personages. So that's a boring paragraph that makes you want to cut your eyes out. But then the next line is, who shall tell what may be the effect of writing? You're like, oh, well, wait a minute now. Now she's doing something different. If it happens to have been cut in stone, though it lie face down, down most for ages on a forsaken beach, or rest quietly under the drums and tramplings of many conquests, it may end by letting us into the secret of usurpations and other scandals gossiped about long empires ago. And so all of a sudden you're like privy to the process by which she's telling the story by using the metaphor of the interchange of letters between these two people. And mm -hmm. I was like, wow, that's that's some next level shit right there. Also, she used the word usurpations, which I've never written in my entire life. I've never typed that word. <laughs> usurpations, yeah. I just turned in my new book and usurpations does not appear in it in any place. <laughs> You Not keep adding once. an extra T in there. Usurpations. 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 So it's it's some pretty postmodern shit she's doing, which uh, is is neat. And I think that's I mean all the like I don't I I just I hate all the the real estate shit. But yeah. um, the way she talks about it is is compelling, and the way she's sort of talking about. The artistic process, I think, is uh, is interesting. Also, it's, there's a it's weird pretty, thing. When, it's pretty mind-boggling to me that like on on that something that is a classic like this that is um, such as like a sort of standard novel, you know, at a time when the novel was still a relatively new form, was already breaking the rules of the form. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? It's the same yeah. thing like when you read Cervantes and you're like, oh my god, like. This is, you know, supposedly like one of the first novels in the world, and it already has all these postmodern levels, like that would make David Foster Wallace's head spin. And you realize, yeah. like, it was like the first book, and he was already doing the like, you know, intertextual stuff and making joke, you know, in the same way that she is, like, sort of breaking the fourth wall and talking to the reader. It's just, it's, it's fascinating to me that like we we forget that like sort of. It was always the form always was made to be broken. Do you right. know what I mean? Like yeah. the rules of, of a of a novel or of a book or storytelling are there to be broken, and they always were, and they'll always be played with. And um, it, yeah, I, I, I'm impressed. So mm -hmm. one thing I don't ever quite understand is why does does Rig end up taking Featherstone's name? Is that was that a thing? Like if you if you're bequeath all their stuff, all of a sudden you you become them. Well, he's he's a son, isn't he? He's like a bastard child, right? Isn't that the implication? That's but he didn't have his name. Yeah, but he wasn't called. He wasn't Joshua Featherstone. He was just Joshua Rigg. and then all of right. a sudden he takes his name. I well, because Featherstone need... hadn't acknowledged him. Right. Yeah, we need to follow this story further. 
I don't well, remember I, what happens, but it feels Dickensian. So that means we have we, a mere we have a mere seven hundred pages left to figure it out. That is untrue. You first of all, we are more than halfway through this book. Yeah, are we? Yeah. Yes. There's eight books. My copy. My copy is. Make sure you're not reading notes or something. I know. My text ends on uh, the words rest in uninvited, unvisited tombs on page 838. So we're halfway through. Okay. Yeah. Uh, And you know what's funny is it's starting to happen with me during this big read um, is like I'm starting to measure this quarantine in this book. Yeah. Right. We could have to start Moby Dick right up no, after this. No, I, right. I've, okay, fine. War and Peace? Uh, I want to read War and Peace oh, really I've badly. Got, oh, I've been invited to be on a different podcast. I, so. I've heard... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've, I've been seeing uh, stuff online, people that are reading War and Peace and loving yeah, it. Yeah. It's, like, it's having a big uh, moment yeah, right now. I hope people enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening.